Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. Ian, how you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing, Rachel? I'm just, you know, still brain mush, but doing well. I'm excited for exams to be over. How many exams have you finished, and how many do you still have to write? So I've written two, and I have three. So I have three left, essentially. So I have one uh, Tuesday morning, one Tuesday afternoon, and one Friday morning. So. Can we take like 15 seconds here to remind people that Rachel Dory, <laughs> who used to work for the New Jersey Devils, is now coaching. Uh, she is in school. What's your program again? You have like 10 different things on the go. Uh, Masters of Sports Science and Analytics. That's pretty cool. And your work, uh, which team are you? Which university team are you helping with uh, the coaching with? Uh, both the men's and women's hockey teams. So. It's four games a week, and it's usually like Friday, Saturday, or Friday, Sunday. Um, so just trying to balance out, making sure I can do all the research and the stats and help out with both teams. It's, I enjoy it, though. It's a ton of fun. And I sit on my ass at home and watch hockey and write about it. So that's... <laughs> it's my- <laughs> we are uh, a good tandem here. Different skill sets, I would say. Yeah, but now I get... Every time I miss something, I can text you, and I get to kind of stay up to speed on that. Well, yeah, because I, I rewind stuff. Like, during live games, My it, it sucks watching games with me. My dad will be watching a game with me, for example, and I'll rewatch the same breakout pass, like, three different times, because I'm like, how did he see that? Or on a defensive zone blown coverage, I'll rewind it four different times to see what happened. It's great from an analysis perspective, but if you're watching the game with me for fun, I'm the worst possible person to watch a game with. Oh, see, and I'm kind of that way as well. Like I'll analyze something and I'll go back and I'll look at which is why when I rewatch the games, there's four games in any given weekend, two for each team, it takes me probably the best part of six hours. To, okay, to see, do that. it doesn't take me that long. It ta- I, I feel like I catch up during commercial breaks, but it's uh, it's it's not the greatest viewing experience. I, I feel like I was talking to Justin Bourne about this. He says the more you watch hockey and the more you try to break it down tactically, the less you enjoy the fun aspects of it. Oh my god, I got that warning when I first started working in Sudbury. He goes, I can teach you how to do this, but just be aware that hockey will be ruined for you forever from a fan perspective. And then it's funny, then you start to really appreciate the really defensive-oriented players, and you're thinking, I don't want to watch this, but man, as a coach, I love this player. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the the player who never makes a blue-line turnover. Or the player who's just always a responsible F3 in the offensive zone, you know? He's always there covering for the defenseman every time they pinch. No two-on-ones the other way. Also means that there's probably not as much offense if they're not taking many chances offensively, and they're always high in the offensive zone. But the inner coach in me loves it, you know? So coaches are naturally risk-averse and want goal prevention, whereas offensive, talented players are usually good at doing that by themselves. So the inner coach in me wants players to play really great defensively, but the inner fan in you typically just wants a bunch of awesome goals, right? Yeah, I would say that's that's pretty accurate. Um... I think this leads into our discussion of, of the day, which is complementary players. 
And the, the, what we mean when we say complimentary players, let's say you're on a line with two very talented, skilled players who are going to have the puck all the time. What do you need to be doing to help that line have success? And I guess we'll, we'll dive into it a bit more here, and then we'll start talking about some of the more successful lines in hockey. And do you really need a complimentary grinder? Like, wouldn't it just be better to have a, a skilled player there? But when you hear the word complimentary winger or complimentary forward, even maybe a complimentary defenseman to a really strong puck mover, what, what do you think of when you hear that term? Um, it's more of a player who doesn't. So last week we talked about driving play. Um, it's not a player who does that. So when I think about it, um, Pascal Dupuis was a complimentary player. Sidney Crosby was clearly driving the bus on that line. Um, but Pascal Dupuis was really good at making sure that the Penguins got the best out of Crosby kind of thing. So it's, it's for me, a complimentary player helps to get the best out of the driving player. Crosby's such an interesting player because sometimes they'll try different players with him and it just doesn't seem to click. And then you'll put a Chris Kunitz with him or a Connor Sheary and it's magic and I, I know that at Team Canada, this is why they've they brought Chris Kunitz with them because they're like, well, you know, sometimes we're not sure in a small sample if we can get a skilled player to work. We know that Chris Kunitz works with him, so let's just put him there. I disagreed with it because I'm thinking, hey, if Chris Kunitz is good with Sidney Crosby, Marsha and Bergeron are going to be friggin' amazing with him, and we got to see that at the uh, the World oh, Championship. Oh my god, that line was so fun to watch. Was that the World Cup of Hockey or the World Championships? I can't remember. Yeah, it was the World Cup of Hockey, and I just remember thinking like. This line shouldn't be allowed. It's too good. And let's let's break that down. Why does Crosby work with a Marchand Bergeron, but not with a Phil Kessel? And I think it has to do with how well Bergeron and Marchand are without the puck. You know, how, how great they can get into an offensive zone forecheck, uh, force turnovers, get in the passing lanes. They can back check. They're players who can have tons of success without needing to be the primary puck carrier on their line. And I'd argue they probably aren't even the primary puck carrier on their line. I think that's probably David Pasternak, if we're being honest with ourselves. Yeah, I think Marshan and Bergeron, one of the things I think that's really key to being a good complementary player is you have to be able to think the game and process the game at the same level as the superstar. So that means that you have to be able to know what he's going to do. There also needs to be a level of predictability to your play. So I find a lot of the time um, with a star, they have their most success with players who they know what they're going to do. There's no unpredictability in the game. You know, okay, this player, they're going to go in, they skate in straight lines, they're going to win the puck there, their stick's going to be on the ice at this portion of the net, um, this is their strength, this is their weakness. I think that Patrick Hornquist really comes to mind, like how well he plays with Malkin. Yes, like it's there needs to be a degree of predictability if you're gonna be a complimentary player, and I think that with Bergeron and Marshawn, at least where Crosby is concerned, there is that degree of p- predictability. You know Patrice Bergeron, if you need him to be F three every single time, he's going to be F three every single time. You know Third that forward high in the offensive zone, getting back, making sure there are no odd man rushes. Exactly. And and with Marchand, you know he's gonna go into the corner, he's gonna mix it up, he's going to incite opponents because that's what he does best. But then you also know that you can give him to give it to him down low in front of the net, and he's gonna be able to score in tight. Yeah, he might be the best two hundred foot winger in the NHL. Like there's a there's a conversation there at least. Him, Mark Stone. 
Yeah, Nikita Kucherov, even though he's not as good defensively, he's a freak offensively. Yeah, I just think that the superstars need the degree of predictability so that they know what they're getting and they can sort of adjust to those tendencies. And that's sort of how I think you build success. Now, I still think there's an argument to be made that it's just better to have skill on the ice at all times. It's just better to have as much talent out there as humanly possible. If you look at Nashville this year, the Michael Granlin, Matt Duchesne, Philip Forsberg line has been completely unstoppable. And I'm not sure if any of those players are aggressive puck hounds in the corner or, you know, real tough physical players, but they always have the puck because they're all really good at hockey. But I think the argument here is that if you have that much skill on your team, you're probably better off putting Michael Granlund on his own line where he can run his line, having Philip Forsberg run his line. And if you have three different lines, all of which have a very, very good player there, then you can throw the complementary player on the wing and it helps you get the most out of your three lines. I know when you look at Pittsburgh, they could have stacked their top six in those cup years where they had Kessel with Malkin. But what they found worked the best was having Kessel be the primary puck carry on his line, Malkin on his line, and Crosby on his line, and then find complementary players to work around it. Don't tell me about Hart. Um, Dawson Spriggins, before he started working with the Colorado Avalanche, actually had some research on this, and he indicated that if you have star players, it's best to spread them out throughout your lineup so that you always have at least one of them on the ice. That tends to be the best right. way to drive results. And if you look at, so we, you just talked about Pittsburgh, look at what Edmonton's doing on the other end of the spectrum. It You would think the smart thing to do would be to play McDavid and Dreisaitl at different points because based on how much both of them play, you could probably have them on the ice for almost three quarters of the game. I mean, with how they're playing right now, they could have them for the entire game. <laughs> to be, Yeah, I mean, so... The, Pittsburgh split them up and had success. Edmonton, I mean, there's obviously a rumor that Dreisaitl doesn't want to be split from McDavid, but at the end of the day, like, McDavid is so good that you've seen it for the past few years. He could have no one on his wing and be successful, whereas we don't know if the same could be said for Dreisaitl quite yet. Yeah, D- Dom Lustrician's argument is that you should really ride the top six and that you should put Nugent Hopkins with Dreisaitl on the second line, put McDavid with anyone, and then just not play your bottom six really ever. Like, don't play your fourth line and play your third line like 10 minutes a night. And that might be the best way to squeeze value out of that roster. It's hard when you don't have any bottom six. When you have zero depth, that kind of limits your options up front. But it, on teams who have the depth, I've found that having a lot of puck carriers lower in the lines. If you have a a third-line center or a third-line winger who's phenomenal at moving the puck, on Toronto, Alexander Kerfoot comes to mind. Phil Kessel, back when he was on Pittsburgh and they were winning cups, is a great example. Then it allows you to have these little complimentary wingers come in. And yeah, is Zach Hyman the best possible winger to have with Tavares and Marner? Probably not, but you can get away with him playing there and the line's still going to perform really well. That allows you to have more skill on line one and line three, you know? So maybe that's the best way to optimize your entire team's success. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with playing the top six for that long. I think that's how you tire them out over the course of the the year. Yeah, 82 games, probably not a great idea. Probably not the best idea. But if you're in, and this conversation was had amongst a few people regarding the Leafs last year when they had... Matthews, Tavares, Kadri, in the playoffs 
or in the lead up when you really need to play three centers. Like just play three centers. Why does your fourth line play in the playoffs? This is just a random question that I've been thinking about. In the NBA, teams shorten their bench because they realize after about your seventh or eighth man, everyone sucks. And in, in a Leafs roster or any roster around the league, your top nine's probably solid. Your top four is probably pretty good. But your bottom pairing's probably pretty bad. And your fourth line, you probably don't want out there in a tie game with five minutes left. Why don't you just play your best players more and not play your fourth I line? would say to that, in the playoffs, like I'm looking at um, potentially you have your three lines that you just mentioned, and then your fourth line only plays on special teams. So that's where you have your power play specialist and like your two best penalty killers, let's say for argument's sake, right? And that line, those players only play in their given specialty team situations. Um, so you have like your Michael Grabner specialist. Exactly. And like, I don't necessarily know that that's a good idea, but it's definitely something I'm curious about because then at that point, 8D? you could do 8D theoretically. Yeah. Um, but even th- from that perspective, I I would lean more towards four forwards at, on at once than I would haven't, then you can't really have 8D, right? Then you'd be looking yeah. more at playing 5D. Which That's it, more of an outside-the-box idea, but I've always liked the idea of if you're down by a goal with five minutes left, why don't you run four forwards out there? We you do that at York. <laughs> hey, oh, and we also it. pull our it. goaltender with more than five minutes left in the game. Like when you're down by two or three goals? Even, like, if we're down by two goals, we're pulling the goalie at the six-minute mark more more than nice. usual. Or if we're even down by one, we're pulling it at probably, like, the four-minute mark. It's the same concept as going for it on fourth down in, in the NFL. Just we, we learned that being more aggressive when you're losing. It, oh, if you don't get this, then man, they're gonna score on the empty net. You were gonna lose that game anyways. You're still losing. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna you're gonna lose this game if you punt the ball. You know, Joe Flacco had a great quote, and he's like, you know, why are we running the ball on third and five, and why are we not going for it on fourth down? Because we're losing. We we need to get ourselves back in this game. If you're losing, pull your goalie. Pull it earlier. I know that everyone gets mad at Mike Babcock in Leafsland, but he's been one of the more aggressive goalie pullers in the NHL. Who's the... Oh, the, the I think it's Megan Hall who's been doing some it excellent is. research yes. on this. Yeah, yeah. And the earlier you pull your goalie, the more likely you are to score. And there's a lot of great research on this. The more aggressive teams at doing it tend to be the ones who get back in games a bit easier. It's funny, Patrick Waugh, who's very anti-analytics had a vibe. He just thought that, you know, pulling your goalie earlier would be the right call. It turns out that that is backed up by the analytics, that his his initial gut feeling was absolutely right. Those type of players that have the feel for the game that some people just don't, there's, there's a difference between the high hockey IQ and then just your ability to have a feel for the game. And there's some players like Crosby's feel for the game. You just... It's one of those things where you can tell that in the right play, he might, in the right moment, this might be the right play, but he's going to make the better play. And for a coach's standpoint with Patrick Waugh, this might be backed up by the analytics, but my gut tells me that if we play six players for longer, we might score. And hey, look, they match up kind of thing, right? So sometimes... And the other team's going to be caved in their own zone. They're going to be tired. By the If you need to change lines, you're probably going to have puck possession. The other team's going to be changing. Then you can run another entry play. It's kind of like having a power play. Well, it is a power play, right? If you're six on five. I mean, you have one more skater, and they can't ice the puck, 
right? If you're on yeah. the penalty kill, that's a little different because then you're six on four. They can just start taking shots at the empty net. That's a little more dangerous. Um, but they're flipping it off the glass, and then you can retrieve it and run the entry again. Exactly. It's all like, is it more effective when it comes to scoring goals than a power play? It's not. No, it's not. I don't think it is because of the lack of space. No, no. And obviously, you give up way more because you don't have a goaltender. Yeah. <laughs> but it's worth the risk to improve your chances of scoring. But let's get back to the complimentary players argument. What what do you say when someone says, okay, as great as it would be to have, you know, a Chris Kunitz there with Crosby or a, a Zach Hyman with Tavares and Marner, why don't you just put someone there who can shoot? Wouldn't that be the best way to optimize a line, having a talented player who can take advantage of these passes? So I think that there's something to be said for a player who has a really simple game complementing two of the more higher-end skilled players. So... I've kind of made this argument for McDavid in the fact that put a skilled player, like separate him and Dreisaitl has to happen, but put a a team success because obviously they're great together. And if they had the depth to do it, that would be awesome. But they just don't, unfortunately. And in McDavid's case, the guy, like he's going to win every puck race pretty much. Like I've never seen someone this fast. It's ridiculous. Also, Dreisaitl's really good. He doesn't need to be McDavid's Batman and Robin. He can run his own line. Exactly. So I I would say that you need to have one thing that Mike Babcock is abundantly right about and doesn't get enough credit for being right about in is that those two players, Tavares and Marner, can't score if they don't have the puck. And he said the same... That's a crazy idea. Just crazy philosophy. And And... He said the same thing about Datsuk and Zetterberg when he was in Detroit, and it just blew up when he came to Toronto because of the fact that it's Toronto instead. But you can't score unless you have the puck. So those guys, like the skill players, I mean, it's no secret, remove Sidney Crosby from this because he's a grinder, but just with an abundance of skill. They don't want to go in the corners and battle for the puck. So putting someone on their line... the good players do it. Putting someone on their line that... A, can keep up, B, can think the game, but C, you know, will go in there, win the puck battle, get the puck out, and you'll be able to play um, in the offensive zone with it. That is something that a lot of skill players want. Um, like, let's face it. Should we bring up Tom Wilson again on the podcast, which is going to be very fun? He's, and... That's actually a great example. I mean, he's also a bit of a, a, a lunatic, which oh, not is a bit, another but dimension. He is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> But when it comes to his ability to get in on the forecheck, he's a great F1 forechecker. And a lot of star players don't like being F1. Exactly. You know? We complain. I've seen it in your report cards that Matthews is never F1. Marner is never F1. I've seen Tavares be F1, so that's a little different. Yeah. But Nylander. Nylander didn't like being F1. Nope. Still doesn't like <laughs> being F1. Um, McDavid's so fast that he's F1 and gone by the time the defenseman's well, even he's... there. He's waiting for his teammates because he's on a one-on-three. <laughs> like He's already behind everybody. But then when he misses the breakaway, he has to circle back. But even you look at the opposite, <laughs> right? Look at James Neal. He's not driving play, but you get him the puck in a certain area, it's going in the back of the net. He's kind of like in basketball, that, that your big man who can shoot, who's like the last man into the play, and everyone's already sagged off. But if he runs into open space and you get him the ball like he's going to score... James Neal is not going to be the first man in on the forecheck. James Neal probably won't even be the second man in on the forecheck with his speed these days. But when he comes up to the play in the in the middle of the slot and he's open, he can score from there. 
and then op the opposition has to defend that, that's going to open up space for other players. This is my argument of why the Jets shoot at such a high percentage when Patrick Lane's on the ice. Yep. Not just because of his individual shooting talent, which is otherworldly, but it opens up crazy amounts of space for his line mates, and he doesn't even need to touch the puck. Exactly. He just arrives whenever he feels like arriving and it's usually a one-timer or a quick release shot and it's bar down and the face-offs at center ice when you have that kind of talent then the argument here is that can't you have your best players being the f1s and the f2s consistently engaged with the puck engaged with the play see i just and don't just have a shooter fill in they want to do that right we've seen it time and time again in toronto and everyone complains about it montreal can't stop complaining about how jonathan durant doesn't want to be f1 on the four check the reality of it is Sidney Crosby has set the bar so insanely high for everyone else because he, for over a decade, was the best player in the game, but was F1 on the forecheck. Sometimes he was F3, sometimes he was F1 coming back, sometimes he was F3 coming back, and no matter what he was doing, he was the best at it, right? Whereas you're seeing a lot of skilled players, like Alex Radulov, for example, he doesn't want to be F1 on the forecheck. What are you, crazy? And so you're seeing... Now, I'm not going to call them soft, but a lot of the superstar skilled players don't want to be F1 on the forecheck because they don't want to be in that physical confrontation. Can I say something as a coach? Like, if I were coaching them? Yeah. Too bad? Oh, I have said that a couple of times. <laughs> I don't care. Get in that puck battle. Uh I, I don't understand why we have to give stars such a break by playing them with someone who's going to make their life a little bit less annoying to go get the puck well too bad you're, you're good at getting the puck and when you get you're it you're also like six foot three or six foot four and 215 pounds like go get the puck okay or even if we're not talking about matthews if we're talking about a skilled player who's got some speed i'm like well you're fast go get the puck you're gonna win that race anyways oh but i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to put my shoulder into him and stick lift him and i might have to take a hit yeah that's hockey i don't care yeah you you might <laughs> like that's how it works if you look at the players with the best 200-foot impact on this game, we've talked about it before, the Mark Stones, the Sean Couturiers, the Ryan O'Reillys, look at how they go into puck battles. Oh, they're number one on the forecheck more often than they're not. Yeah, and then they also have to get back and be F3 sometimes to be responsible. Do you think they want to do all that? They'd probably rather be scoring lots of goals. But these are the things you have to do to win in hockey. So I don't know how much time I have for the argument of, well, you know, stars don't want to be F1 on the forecheck when it just seems like a laziness aspect to me. I feel like the best players in the league are actually doing it, are interchanging roles all the time, whether it's because of their speed, like Connor McDavid and Nathan McKinnon, or just pure effort, like you see with Sidney Crosby. Last year, he was a goddamn animal. Yeah, he is. He, he's one of the NHL's best forecheckers, which is insane. Like, his loose puck recovery rate... I remember looking at this, I want to say 18 months ago, and it was sky high. It was unbelievably high. And you would think that he is a grinder. And this is why I think Crosby and actually Ovechkin as well are going to be productive into the latter stages of their career. They do things that other superstars do not, which is what makes them generational, right? There's a difference between, like Nikita Kucherov is a superstar, right? But we're not going to sit here and say Nikita Kucherov is a better hockey player than Sidney Crosby. Because he's not. Well, he, or, I don't think he was last year. Sidney Crosby's 200-foot impact last year was absolutely bonkers. He 
should have been in the conversation with a Selkie. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think people realized how much he did for that Pittsburgh team because Pittsburgh's always been good, but they weren't good last year. Crosby was. <laughs> yeah. And so, I don't know, like, we talk about complimentary players, and I think that there's almost this demand for them because the players that are the stars just don't want to go in the corners. Like, they don't want to do it. Think about, like, what Darcy Tucker used to do. The guy's not that big, but he goes in, he wins his battles, and Bob's your uncle, we have the puck. Would you say that Landeskog does that for Ranton and McKinnon? Or do you think McKinnon does it a little bit? I- I'm not sure, because McKinnon's so fast, he's usually the first man in just by default. He's also a bull, so, like, with that line, I would say McKinnon's probably the... He's everything, to be fair. He's very similar to Crosby in that aspect. He literally has to be everything. Like Bergeron, Marchand do everything. Like whether they're F1, F2, F3, yeah, they're one of the best in the league at all of those roles. So it doesn't really And that's what makes them so dangerous is because all three of them, when you include Pasternak, have the ability to do different things. Like, well, Pasternak's not the greatest F1, if we're being honest. And he's but probably he not the greatest F3. But he, he, you want him to have the puck and he's... I think I don't think people realize that he's almost Stamkos-esque in his shooting ability. He's leading the NHL in points as it stands on Monday afternoon. I wouldn't be shocked if he won the Rocket Richard. Uh see, I think like his it'll it'll regress a little bit, but I think he could be in the conversation. I just think he's one of those guys. Last year he scored at a forty-seven goal pace. He was just injured for a lot of the year. Yeah, he's steadily improved his impact, and that contract continues to be a steal for the Bruins. But if you had two David Pasternak's on a line, for fun, let's say, who should that third player be? Well, it needs to be someone who's willing to be an excellent F1 and an excellent F3 because Pasternak wants to be involved offensively. He wants to be carrying the puck. He's not going to get into puck battles as aggressively as you'd probably like him to. So you need to find players who can do that. See, but the thing with David Pasternak is he might not get involved as much as a Crosby or a McKinnon, But there have been numerous occasions where I've turned on a Boston Bruins game and he has been number one on the forecheck and he might not win the puck battle, but he at least gets there first, takes out the body so that someone else like Bergeron or Marjan can come in and get the puck. Right now with some stars, you're not even seeing that. Can you compare uh, his buddy Nylander in that regard? Yeah, Nylander doesn't really get in on the forecheck, but the problem with the thing that people don't recognize with Nylander is he's so good at stripping pucks. In the neutral that, zone, he's a freak. That he could literally be F2, just walk by with it or escape by with a stick lift, and the puck's gone. Right? So he doesn't necessarily have to be F1 all the time because he's so effective with his stick. Right? Whereas Posternock will get in there, he'll get body position, and either he'll get the puck or he'll make make it so that his line mate can get the puck. I'm just saying that there's a reason that that line works so well. And there's a reason that this generational talents of Crosby and McDavid are as good as they are. And it's because they're willing to do things that other superstars are not. So let's say I'm cheering for a team. Maybe it's not the Leafs. There's someone listening to this podcast who, okay, my, my team's best player, this incredibly sp- skilled guy, uh, who should play with him? What is the best way to complement that skill set? Probably, probably another great player. But then, who's that third banana? Who's the best kind of complement? Banana? Player? Where did you come up with that? You've never heard the, the third banana? That's not. That's a thing, isn't it? 
Here, I've never once heard that in my entire life. Third banana, um, for the uninitiated, okay. is a very humble station in show business. During the Depression, Phil played burlesque. The average burlesque company carries three comedians who are always known as the first, second, and third bananas. There you go. Okay, uh, feel free to tweet at us if you didn't know what that reference was. You don't watch enough basketball if you've never heard third banana. Come on, that's like a common term. We've already established that I don't even have time to eat, so how am I going to watch basketball? You don't have time to eat the kale salad that Mike Babcock was talking about. Hey, man, I actually did have, what, what is it, like kale Caesar salad a few days ago, and I thought about you. Anyways, <laughs> back to being the third banana, apparently. Um, I think it is a player who's really effective um, stripping pucks, really effective getting in on the forecheck. Um probably more physical than um the superstar and dare i say it probably more defensively responsible too someone who's willing to be the third man back when your superstar is deep in the zone creating offense and is not exactly making the greatest effort to get back either some of them are really bad in that regard some of them are pretty good but i have Full stop seeing players gliding through the neutral zone when there's a three-on-two happening. The inner coach in you is just pulling out your hair because it's like, that's just you being lazy. Skate faster. <laughs> uh, yep, and I have pulled numerous video clips already this season looking at things like that. Where it's like, you, if you take two strides, you're in that passing lane and they don't score or they don't get that scoring chance. Who is the, least, who is the least lazy player in the NHL? Sidney Crosby. Okay, among star players. Because I bet you there are a lot of third and fourth line grinders who are just going 120% every shift. They don't have the talent to, you know, impact the game the same way that some players do, but they're extracting the most value from their personal talent. Whereas there are a lot of star players in this league who aren't maximizing their talents, and it's very frustrating to watch. Well, for me, I watch, so Crosby's been in the league for, I think this is his 19th season, or not 19th season. <laughs> Uh, 14th, 14th season. It's 2019. I'm trying to do math in my head and it's not working apparently. Um, I think it's his 14th season. Now, if you take away the concussions that he's where he's lost games, let's say 12 and a half. In all of the games I've seen Crosby play, I can't specifically remember a point where a commentator or the analyst, so like the Ray or the Pierre Maguire or the Mike Johnson said that was a lazy play by Crosby and it caused like a scoring chance or a goal because it just doesn't happen. He was a whiner earlier in his career. That was the big criticism, and I, I think it was pretty accurate. But he he was never a guy you could accuse of not working hard enough. Exactly. Like he, you, when was the last time you heard someone say that was lazy from Sidney Crosby? Can you even think about that? Uh, I don't know. Who's like the negative beat writer in in Pittsburgh that would find a way to do it? Who's their uh, their like tweets Steve by Maddie? Simmons. <laughs> yeah. but i would say look at the opposite when was the last time someone said jonathan Druin was lazy when was the last time someone said austin matthews was lazy i personally wrote an article about how mitch marner was lazy not seven days ago alex galchenyuk alex galchenyuk another example phil kessel uh, yep like there's so many times where you could point out and i can off the top of my head rhyme them off where player x was lazy i can't tell you a specific time where McDavid was lazy. I can't tell you a specific time where Crosby was lazy. Well, McDavid should have just tried harder, and maybe he would have made the playoffs in the last couple of years. You know? Yeah, he should have skated faster than 40 kilometers an hour. Um, even McKinnon. Like, 
maybe his first few seasons, obviously warming up to the league, but I would say last season, the season before, um, pretty hard to make the argument that he's lazy. There are criticisms uh, of their defensive games, though, when it comes to McKinnon and McDavid. Yes, but none of them come from laziness. I guess that's fair. Right? None of them come from working hard. Like, I don't think anyone criticizes their work rate. Like, it's more well, like positioning, taking away passing lanes, that kind of thing. Right, and I would say McDavid's improved. I'd also say for McDavid, it doesn't matter, like, just because of how ridiculously special he is offensively. It's, he's always on offense. I want him, I, I'm not even sure if I want him to be F3 in the defensive zone. I want him saving his energy for when he needs to go end to end. Yeah, where he just takes the puck from his own icing line and gasses I, the I, I, I try to make him the weak side winger. I, I, I want him to play wing like, on defense, and then the second we get the puck, okay, now you're the main puck carrier, let's go. No, I don't want him playing. I wouldn't want him playing wing because I don't want him battling along the wall. I just don't want when him... When you're a winger, you're expected to be battling along the wall. I would not want that. Okay. You want him, like, more in open ice? Okay, I can see that. Yeah, I would want him in open ice because think about it. If the puck squirts free, you he's getting it. And then he, and then you can take your free shot on McKinnon, or on uh, McDavid in, a, in, like, a playoff game, in a big rivalry game. You can take a big shot at the best player in the world. Exactly. Like, think when they play Calgary, let's say. If he's in the corner in a full-on engaged battle, you're probably going to take a free shot at him. Matthew Kachuk's coming in elbow first. Oh my god. (laughs) Yes, that's a perfect example, actually. Um, But for McDavid, I would say that getting him someone that can think the game at his rate, obviously no one can play the game at his rate, but to think it at his rate and who can get him the puck, who can win the battle, so they just have to kind of nudge the puck free, because the second he gets going, he's gone. Mark Shifley had a great article about this, about uh, Connor Sherry and Jake Gensel when they were playing uh, with Sidney Crosby. It was his Players' Tribune article, so when I say Mark Shifley, what I really mean is Mark Shifley's agent who wrote this. Uh, (laughs) I remember this article. This was a really good article. It was a great article. Good job, Mark Shifley's agent. Really well written. But, sorry, that's my joke about players' uh, Tribune (laughs) articles is that they don't actually write them. But the article was about how Jake Gensel and Connor Sheary have played with Crosby for so long that they think the game at his level, and they're even making plays not necessarily with him, with each other, where they're just thinking the game two or three moves ahead, and you can see how Crosby has that impact on the players that he plays with. They're not, instead of shooting it from the slot, you're faking the shot and then passing it back door to a player, and even knowing to skate into that space back door, you need to play with Crosby to know that you need to be there. So you just start making higher level plays, and you start thinking the game at a higher level. Yeah, and I always see these superstar players in discussions with their line mates on the bench. And every time I see this, I think to myself, specifically in McDavid's case, because he just hasn't had any wingers. If he's telling you to go somewhere or to be somewhere, like, do it. Because odds are that he's asking you to be more predictable so that he knows where you're going to be so that he can make the play and you can score. How much would you pay to hear McDavid's conversations with his crappy wingers over the years? Oh my god. <laughs> hey, like, hey, man, do you want to just, like, go to the net with your stick down? Like, it's it's not hard. <laughs> yeah, and, like, take this path so I can get the puck to you. Like, come in on either the middle of the net or the near side as opposed to, like, 10 feet from the far side of the net where I can't really get it to you. Milan Lucic, you want to try skating faster than, like, two miles an hour so that we can kind of get some chances off the rush here? No? But <laughs> even, like... <laughs> Say what you want about Lucic. At least McDavid knew that he wasn't going to be able to keep up with him. 
but he was likely going to go into battles and things like that. That's a predictability I'm talking about. Obviously, you'd like your winger to be able to move a little better. But he's but... the fifth player into the offensive zone, and the and the the the, the cycles not ideal. Started. Yeah. I feel like you need to have some skating ability to catch up in the game, and that's why we look at the age curves. Players in their 30s get a lot worse. Players in their young 20s are the most impactful at 5-on-5. On the power play, you can be slower. You can be like a Joe Thornton and still have a great impact. But at five Like, he's on... a great example of a complimentary player now. And he needs to be a bit sheltered. He can't. You can't yeah. put him up against like the other team's top lines. But it's funny, he still dominates in his like third-line role. And it's kind of just awesome to see him slow the game down. Right. And Joe Thornton actually is an example of a complimentary player who probably isn't going to go into puck battles. But I mean, if you put the puck on his the stick. driver on his third line in a way? Well, yeah, I would say if he's playing on a first or second line, he's a complimentary player. If he's on the third line, he's driving the bus. He's more of a third liner at this point, isn't he? Isn't that the role that they have him playing in San Jose? Yeah. I, so, I mean, sometimes I, okay, it's fun. like a quasi second line role. It's hard to tell what yeah. it is, but it's very clearly not a first line role. Uh, no. Alrighty, so I think that I've kind of touched on complimentary players and what they need to do. Um, Try, basically. And <laughs> if you have a player... And then we've talked about how, how superstars, the generational talents, do everything, and that's why they're so good. And that's really, like, I feel like we agree on this. That's the difference between Connor McDavid and somebody like Austin Matthews or... Um, Jonathan Drouin type situation. Connor McDavid is just a freak. I don't like comparing him to anyone when it comes to his no. physical tools. It's like it's he no one shouldn't be compared to anybody. He's not human. Yeah. Alrighty. So now that we've covered that, we've got a couple mailbag questions. Alrighty. Um, let's get into it. I will say that this is probably yours to answer. It's too early, but who's disappointed you so far this year that isn't wearing a Toronto Maple Leaf uniform? Because you could pick a number of players on that team. So uh, which non-Leaf has kind of disappointed you a bit this year? Connor Brown only has one goal, so, you know. But he's got nine assists or ten assists. Yeah, but he's not going to I didn't expect that. 25 goals? It's just, I'm not sure if it's going to happen. <laughs> well, not if he's going to be one in ten. I didn't think he's going to have that many assists. I'm not going to lie. Uh, like, can I say Kevin Fiala? I mean, we talked about him last week. Yeah, you can say Kevin I can say Fiala. Kevin Fiala. I wasn't prepared for this question, so now I really need to think about it. Do you have any names who come to the top of your list? Um, I would say Matthew Kachuk, or generally most people on Calgary, to be honest. Um, Hasn't Matthew Kachuk been good? I haven't been following Calgary closely. There's been, there was a stretch where I want to say for almost two weeks he didn't have a single point. Ooh. I want to I want to say that that but was the that case. But that happens, you know, like sometimes the shooting percentages just completely drop. And up. he's clearly been poor enough and same with Goudreau and Monahan where Bill Peters literally took the magnets in his office with the player names on him and threw them on a board and said, "Okay, these are the lines because the Winter or Heritage Classic lines that Calgary rolled with were quite something." <laughs> like Goudreau Monahan split up, Matthew Kachuk uh, I believe was with Monaghan. Uh, Lindholm was on the first line. There was a whole bunch of nonsense going on. So for me, that that's a pretty good indicator that they've been pretty disappointing. Uh, I think my answer to this might just be the entire New York Rangers. I thought that they would be relatively interesting 
and or maybe Nikita Gusev in uh in in the New Jersey would be a good choice. I'm not sure how much you can comment on the trash heap train wreck that is the the New Jersey Devils right now. So this is a text message I received from someone completely unprovoked. I was at my own game and I don't text when I'm on the bench because you can't do that. And someone sent this to me. So the low-key thing that's killing your old team right now, they're getting nothing from Simmons. Gusev has been a negative, and they can't fit him in on power play one. And Shocker that, that might Wayne not- Simmons, who was washed last year, is, you know not dominating this year and the fact that Subban has just been okay the summer of Shiro guys are actually part of the problem and the goalies when not going to get one was a decision they made during the summer of Shiro is also a big problem that was a text message that I got so for me like I've watched one game and it was the Hughes versus Hughes um that was actually a fun game and that was a great game um everyone looked like they were trying in that game (laughs) <laughs> I would say the fact that Kevin Rooney is playing more than Nico Hishier, who was injured, but is probably not a great indicator of how things are going. And the fact that fans are hollering for Nikita Gusev to play more would tell me that he's also probably not playing well. I'm trying to find his uh, shot metrics here. Who, Nikita Gusev? Yeah, well, okay, when he's on the ice, how many of the shots do you think New Jersey's controlling after you adjust for score effects? 35%. Less, it's 33. What? 33. (laughs) So, like, he's getting one-third of them. When he's on the ice, they're getting peppered at a a rate of uh, two to one. Uh, What do you think the New York Rangers, how many of the shots have they controlled at five on five? 42%. 41% of the okay, shots. So I was close. And expected goals. Even though expected goals are a bit wonky right now, uh, thanks to the uh, problem that Evolving Wild pointed out. That's why I'm relying on shots for stuff early in the season here. But yeah, the New York Rangers are just, they're getting destroyed worse than they were last year. And they have way more talent. I'm sad. <laughs> I thought this would be fun to watch. I this would be a fun team. And they're like a catastrophe. So here's the thing. Uh, David Quinn came out, and I think Henrik Lundqvist said, said something as well. And when Henrik Lundqvist speaks and you're on the New York Rangers, you listen. Like, it's full stop, that simple. He's also freakishly good looking. You just can't not. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, this is what David Quinn, in part, had to say about his team. I think part of being a professional athlete is handling adversity and understanding a consistent battle level gives you a chance to have success. I just think we have guys that don't fully understand that. He then went on to say that basically his guys are playing the two skilled game and they're not getting in on the forecheck and they're not practicing well. Their practice habits are terrible. Their in-game defensive habits are not very good. To me, that's a clear indicator that that team has they get has skill, but they maybe don't quite understand the work ethic required or the the little things required to have success in the NHL. Because Henrik Lundqvist basically said the same thing verbatim. And Capocacco's shot metrics at 5-on-5 five five have been brutal. But again, 18-year-old, first year in the league, first month in the league. It, Patrick Lonnie's shot metrics in his first month in the league were kind of hilarious. It's <laughs> because when you when you're like 18 and like you're not used to the the NHL side uh, like the defensive components that are needed from you 
and you're not trying defensively, it's it's going to be bad. So I have confidence that Kapokako is going to get exponentially better as this season goes on, much like Andrei Svechnikov did in Carolina. The second half of the season, Svechnikov was elite. And the first half of the season, he was really good, but he was so much better in the second half. I bet you we see that from Kako. Panarin's been underwhelming so far. Like for a guy who you want to see him take that step and be the leader of this team... Eh, disappointing. I know that it's just, you know, 10 games into the season, but I thought this team could legitimately fight for the playoffs this year. And they're play and they're playing like the Buffalo Sabres when they were tanking, you know, they just look terrible. All right. So last question, someone sent this in saying, I vaguely remember hearing that a team that fails to score on a five on three power play will probably lose the game. Do you think this holds true? Or is it more a case that that team is seen to deserve to lose the game because they don't score on the five on three. I don't have an answer for this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to defer to you. <laughs> I would hazard a guess that it's probably not related. Although considering that York had a five on three this weekend and didn't score and then ended up losing in overtime. I would say that the second part of that, where you're seen to deserve to lose the game might be, um, in the psyche. I know that right? we if love you... narratives. We love the idea that because a yeah, team killed be a off a five-on-three that they, they came back and they really battled and they won the game. But do you remember the times that that team loses the game? You, you probably don't because... But then again, I can, I can see it from this side of the argument. If a team has a five-on-three, what do we know about NHL officiating? That the other team is probably going to get a few calls their way to help offset it. So if you fail to take advantage of that scoring opportunity on the power play, you probably have a few extra penalty kills coming your way. So maybe just logically and mathematically, if you don't score in that five on three, because you're going to be shorthanded at least once or twice throughout the rest of the game, you are more likely to lose that game than not. And also there's the momentum factor. How much does momentum play into this, especially if you're at home? And your crowd really gets behind you after a big five-on-three kill. You can feel the energy. Everyone's going really hard on their next couple shifts at even strength. And then you get a big goal to get back in the game. Maybe something like that plays into it a little bit. But I don't have enough research to know if that's true or if that's just us humans going, oh, that's such a great story. That's such a great narrative. Let's roll with it. When really, objectively, maybe that isn't what's happening. Yeah, I mean, that's potentially a reason. But... uh... With that, I think we uh, wrap up this edition of the Staff and Graph podcast, and we'll be back next week when I am exam-free and probably don't sound like I've been buried in a textbook for the last three weeks. So looking forward to that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, everyone pray for Rachel for the next couple days. When is the exam? Uh, I have two on Tuesday, one on Friday. All right, so after Friday... I think you need to get a bunch of drinks and just go ham for a weekend. And actually, <laughs> so after I finish coaching on Friday night, yes, like right. win or lose. If your team wins, it's a big celebration. If you lose, you're drowning your sorrows. Just, <laughs> I think you need to kick back and actually give yourself a a night off of all this craziness. You've been working too damn hard for the last couple of weeks. You just check up on me, like, hey, how you doing? And I just send you back an emoji, like, Ugh. yeah. So, like, when I text you on Friday night, if I don't get a bunch of scrambled letters that don't make any sense, <laughs> I'm going to be very disappointed. Because then I'm going to be like, man, Rachel responded coherently. That's disappointing. She must be having, like, a boring night. Not, not cool. Not cool. Alrighty. Well, with that said, we will 
I guess we'll see how I'm doing on uh, the next podcast on next Tuesday. Hopefully morning. very hungover. Then we'll know that you, you had a good weekend. But uh, right. I'm looking forward to whatever it is we decide to talk about. I know that we usually try to come up with some big, broader topic that we break down into some finer detail. But here's hoping that there's more NHL fodder for us next week. Maybe a big trade? Probably not. Maybe some fun uh, trends in the NHL. Maybe. We'll see. I don't know. Maybe a coach gets fired. That, that might Maybe. Be. Yeah, it's very possible. Who, who, who's your bet on the first coach to get fired this year? Um, Bruce Boudreaux, maybe? Ooh, interesting. He, he should get snatched up right afterwards. But oh, my God. He will be literally hired the same day. What if he's hired by the Leafs? Bum, 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 bum. All right, that's enough for today, Ian. (laughs) Let's get out of here. All right, take care, Rachel. We'll talk. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at the First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at the Athletic and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graph.